Uh, This week we're going to continue our study of Acts from Acts chapter 4. Turn there with me. We'll start Acts 4 verse 1. Uh, We've been looking at uh, the early Christian community. And what Luke gives us here is the earliest eyewitness account of what happened in the life in the church. Those first uh, few years as the, the, the gospel was spreading and the church was growing. Uh, and, and you see here, Peter tells us that they were witnesses to these things. And what we're learning about is how we, as a Christian community, can continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. We're learning how we can continue the ministry of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. And now, as the gospel begins to grow, go out, it, it starts in Jerusalem and begins to spread. Guess what happens as it begins to spread? It begins to experience opposition. Uh, last week, we studied the healing of a lame man, and we talked about how God brought wholeness to the community. And now we see that because of that healing, there's going to be opposition. How do they face it? They face it with boldness. So this morning's sermon is titled Boldness. So let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Uh, We're going to try a little experiment here. We're going to read all 31 verses at once. So you may want to read along up there or in your Bible or on your device. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to, be, came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was, has been healed, <clears throat> let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, Rather than in God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, 
finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and came to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. All men are like glass, not glass, grass. <laughs> and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But not God's word. It stands forever. Let's listen to it. How do Christians live with boldness? Or uh, what does Christian boldness look like? It's a question I want you to think about this morning. Uh, I thought about it a lot this week, and, and I thought a lot about how uh, what boldness looks like has changed for me over the years. Uh, I, I remember being a teenager and thinking, real Christian boldness was obeying your parents and carrying around a Bible at school. Like, that was, that was radical. You were a Jesus freak if that's what you were doing, right? Uh, in college... Uh, Christian boldness was evangelism, whether it was beach evangelism or sidewalk evangelism or evangelism in the fraternity house. It was evangelism and abstaining from the party culture. If you did those two things, you were being bold. The thing is, I got out of college in my 20s and 30s. uh, Boldness became uh, being active in the church and in the community. There was a very uh, activistic sort of feel to it. Uh, now in my 40s, uh, the bars dropped a little bit, <laughs> and boldness simply looks like survival most days. <laughs> How can I actually be a, a good dad and love Jesus <laughs> in my home and in my community? Uh, 50 and older, I, can't, I haven't got there yet. I'm not going to name you if you're over 50, but you guys can figure it out. Talk to each other, and maybe you can figure out who's over 50. You can ask them what it looks like in that phase of life, right? Though All these things are not wrong, as I look back on them. They seemed a little bit simplistic and incomplete. It seemed like uh, Christian boldness ought to look more, look like more than just those things. I think it also looks different as culture changes, right? Uh, Christian boldness looked differently in the ancient Near East when they were throwing people to the lions than it does in our modern technological culture where they're canceling people for Facebook posts and where your employers are searching your social media profiles to see what you've posted. Um, It looks different in a a 19th and 20th century uh, Christian America where our culture was largely religious versus a 21st century post-Christian culture. So as life changes and society changes... I think it becomes all the more important that we go back to the earliest Christian community and we ask ourselves, what does true, genuine Christian boldness look like? 
So this is what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see that, that boldness is a gift of the Spirit that turns opposition to the gospel into an opportunity for the gospel. Boldness is a gift of the Spirit that turns opposition to the gospel into an opportunity for the gospel. So we're going to look at three things. What is boldness? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? Kids, if you want a fun little activity, you can try to keep track of how many times I say boldness in this sermon. It will probably be a lot. Okay? So first off, what is boldness? I think boldness is living with godly character and communicating godly conviction despite opposition. Boldness is living with godly character and communicating godly conviction despite opposition. So if you, if you look at the earliest Christian culture, you see both those things. The early Christian com- community lived with incredible godly character. Uh, we studied Acts 2 a few weeks ago, and Acts 2.47 says that they had favor with all the people. That they had devoted themselves to scripture, to prayer, to the apostles' teachings. They had devoted themselves to this intimate, passionate community. And that community was so beautiful and so good that they had favor with everyone. Um, Here in this passage, Peter and John were arrested for performing a good deed to a lame man. And the religious leaders could not deny the goodness of their act or their character. And in fact, when they had them on trial, they said, there is nothing we can say against these men. There's nothing, we can't find anything wrong with them. And as you look throughout the book of Acts, as you continue to read, what you find is there's continual opposition to the church, but they can never say anything about their character. They probably got this from Jesus, Right? who though he faced continual opposition, his character was perfect, right? When he he went on trial at the end of his life, they couldn't find anything wrong with him. There there was nothing they could convict him of. They They had to create false charges just to convict him. So part of of Christian boldness is living with godly character. And we have to ask ourselves, are we cultivating godly character in our lives? The second thing is we have to communicate godly conviction, right? You've got, you see both those things in the community, right? Peter and John were arrested like Jesus. If, if some of these names sound familiar, right? Annas, Caiaphas, that's because they were part of Jesus' trial. And when you were tried during, during this time, you would come in and the, the rulers would sit in a semicircle and they would sit you in the middle and they would try you. So they were tried the same way Jesus was. And, and think back to Peter before. What happened to Peter before, as Jesus was being tried? What did Peter do? He denied Jesus. He denied knowing him. But what happens in this scenario? Peter boldly communicates the gospel to these men. He, he boldly communicates the resurrection. They say, who healed this man? By what power? By what name? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the man that you crucified, that God raised from the dead. And salvation comes through him and him alone. Now, Peter is is focusing in on the resurrection. Why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. 
So he knew exactly what aspect of the gospel that they needed to hear in that moment. And he communicated that truth to them in such a way as to penetrate their hearts. They communicated their convictions boldly. And again, do we not see the same thing in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. He talked to immoral women, religious elite, and common peasants. And in all these situations, he called people to faith and repentance in him. But he did so in a way that penetrated their hearts individually. He knew exactly what the, uh, the immoral women needed to hear. He knew exactly what Nicodemus the Pharisee needed to hear. He knew exactly what his fishermen disciples needed to hear. And he communicated that conviction to them in a way that penetrated their hearts. So we have to live with godly character, but we also have to communicate godly conviction. We have to communicate truth. And that's where boldness comes in. That's Christian boldness. Christian boldness is living with godly character and communicating godly conviction despite opposition. Now, What tends to happen is we tend to veer to one or the other, right? We tend to only focus on godly character. But if we we only focus on living with godly character, then our evangelism is going to be weak. Because we're not going to communicate in the power of the gospel. Others may tend to only focus on the communication. We've got to communicate our convictions. We've got, to, we've got to speak clearly and boldly to people and to the culture. But they don't focus on developing the godly character. And if you only try to communicate with boldness without having godly character, you're going to invalidate your message. People aren't going to listen to you. Right? You know... You've got both godly character and you're communicating godly conviction when you begin to be persecuted for righteousness' sakes. Remember, we we studied the Sermon on the Mount um, this year. And Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Right? So if you're living with godly character and you're communicating with godly conviction, you are going to experience opposition. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. What is boldness? It's living with godly character and communicating godly conviction despite opposition. And why do we need it? Because everybody's going to oppose us. (laughs) Because everybody opposes Jesus. We need boldness because everyone will oppose us on Jesus' account. Jesus prepared his disciples for this. In in John 15, his last night with his disciples, he says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we see that in this passage. We see that the religious people oppose Jesus and Peter and John, right? The the high priestly family, like these are the people who are supposed to connect the people to God. Like These are the religious elite. They're they're responsible for mediating the presence of God to the people, and they oppose Peter and John. And then you've got the Sadducees, who are the ruling council of Israel, right? They're they're the ones there who's responsible for uh, making sure that people are living godly lives. And what are they doing? They're opposing Peter and John. 
So you have all of the religious leaders opposing them. Why? Well, um, because, <laughs> Peter gives us the answer, right? Because he's communicating God the conviction. Because Jesus is the king. Because Jesus is the Messiah and they're not. Right? Peter's saying, look, Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the ultimate ruler. And you guys aren't. It's a power struggle. It's a power question. And what these religious leaders are doing is they're rejecting Jesus as the king. So the opposition comes from what? It comes from unbelief. That's, that's the thing under the thing that brings opposition is unbelief that Jesus is the king. And that salvation is only found in him. That was a struggle for religious people in this day. And that's the struggle for religious people in our day. Religious people try to find salvation outside of Jesus. They try to find salvation in their own works, in their own morality, in their own activity, outside the church and inside the church. They try to find salvation through their, um, through their uh, Christian service, their Christian morality. They're, they're looking for salvation outside of Jesus. At the end of the day, that, the, that problem there is a belief problem. This was the same thing that Martin Luther experienced when he started the Protestant Reformation, right? What did he do? He called the church to repentance. He, he spoke against indulgences. He spoke against the sacraments. He spoke against the Pope and against the, um, the immorality of the priests. What he was all calling them to was belief that salvation was found in Christ alone. And when he was on trial, what did he say? He said, Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant for anything. To go against conscience is neither safe nor right. God help me. Amen. Right. He was opposed by the religious people, but he spoke with bold conviction. So religious people are going to oppose us, but irreligious people are going to oppose us well. And Peter talks about this in the second half of this chapter he, as he's praying, right? What does he do? He goes to Psalm 2 in verse 27. I'm sorry, in verse 25. He says, through the mouth of, your servant, of, your, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he talks about Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles all being opposed to Jesus, right? These would be the people that would be outside the covenant community. They might be uh, modern day, what we'd consider irreligious people. They would be people who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And they, they have chosen their own spirituality. They've chosen their own ways in this world. They've chosen their own uh, way of salvation, be that through uh, work or romance or um, activism, they found some other way to save themselves, and they've rejected Jesus. Well, what's the sin underneath all their sin? It's unbelief. It's the, it's the same sin that the religious people struggle with. Right? And, and at the end of the day, they will persecute us because of our beliefs. Um, and, it, and it will put us in situations where we'll have to make decisions about how we're going to live in this world. Uh, this, this summer, 
one of my students called, contacted me. Uh, she was doing an internship with a company, and the, the company had asked her to wear a button in support of a cause that they, she thought was, that was unbiblical and that she didn't agree with. And she called me, and she said, Shane, what, what do I do? Do I wear this button? Do I not wear this button? And, and my thought was, you know, um, you have to... <laughs> We believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and that what he says is true and that God's good design in the Bible is true and good. And you have to ask yourself, am I going to submit myself to Jesus or to this company? And you'll have to suffer the consequences. But God is sovereign over your job. He is sovereign over your internship. He is sovereign over your future. And he has promised that you will be blessed when you're persecuted if you refuse to wear that button. That's the kinds of, those are the kinds of situations that we're going to be put in, that we are put in as people of God because people are uh, rejecting Jesus, and because we believe in Jesus, they're going to reject us as well. So irreligious people struggle with unbelief. Religious people struggle with unbelief, but they're not the only ones. Christians, we struggle with unbelief as well, don't we? Uh, there was, in Mark 9, Mark describes a time when a man brought a demon-possessed boy to the disciples to be healed. And the disciples couldn't heal this boy. So then they brought him to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus was talking with the father, right? And he's getting information about how long has this boy been possessed? What's going on? That sort of thing. And the father says to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and please help us. And Jesus says, if all things are possible for those who believe. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe our struggle with Christian boldness isn't as much about the religious people or the irreligious people. Maybe it's as much as about our heart of unbelief. Do we believe in the power of the resurrection? Do we believe that the Bible's teachings are true and good and beautiful? Do we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Do we believe that he's the only hope for us and for this world? The truth is, we believe, but we don't believe. And because we believe, but we don't believe, we lack the Christian character and the Christian conviction that we need in times of opposition. So how do we get that boldness? How do we get it? That's the last thing that we see. Boldness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Boldness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus prepared his disciples for this day. Uh, Luke 12, 11 through 12, this whole chapter, Jesus is giving his disciples teaching. He's preparing them to do ministry and he says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, exactly what happened here, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And what is, uh, it's in Luke, and then what does Luke right here in Acts say? He says, they were filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit gave them this Christian boldness to proclaim the gospel. 
So boldness is a gift of the Spirit that turns opposition into an opportunity for the gospel. It's a gift of the Spirit. How do we access it? Well, Peter uh, gives us some hints here, right? The first way we receive it is we receive it by faith in the resurrection. Receive it by faith in the resurrection. Uh, Peter and John are talking, right? And they're, they're talking to the leaders while they're on trial. And they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard and what we have seen. What had they heard and what they had seen? They had, they had heard and seen the life and death of Jesus, but they'd also seen the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Now, we talk a lot, rightly so, about the life and death of Jesus. Those are absolutely essential to the gospel. But sometimes we forget that without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There's, there's no gospel. Paul says, right, that if Jesus died, if he's still crucified, then we're still dead in our sins and we are to be most pitied among men. Pitied. We're pitied. We're wasting our time here if the resurrection didn't occur. But the good thing is, the resurrection did occur. Jesus did rise from the dead. He did come out of the grave. He did ascend to heaven. And he's ruling and reigning right now. Now, what's the significance of that? The significance of this is this. The victory has been won. Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death through the resurrection. It's over. It's one. Could you imagine uh, how you would play a game if you knew you'd already won? Could you imagine how you would engage in a war or a conflict if you knew the outcome was already determined? Right? What would you do? You would feel freedom. You'd feel power. You'd feel strength. You'd feel boldness. That's what gave Peter the boldness. And that's uh, what allowed the gospel to have power. It's the truth of the resurrection. That gives it power. Uh, Justin and I this week were traveling to our uh, regional presbytery meeting, uh, which is when all of our churches gather together to do the work of the church. Justin came with me, and on the way there, we were talking, and I asked him about what he did. Uh, I wanted to get know more detail. I knew he works for Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible Translators, and I said, I want to know about the Bible translation process and how that works. And so one of the stories he told me, which I thought was, was really fascinating, was that so part of the process is they, they will go to a, a uh, tribe that doesn't have the, the Bible, and they will work with local translators to translate first a gospel, one of the gospels. And then once they get that gospel translated, then they will make a Jesus film out of it, and they will show that Jesus film to the people there for evangelism. Right? It's also a way for them to be able to refine their translation process. Well, in one of the tribes, they had translated the book of Luke. They created a Jesus film out of the book of Luke. And then they showed that video to people to share the gospel with them for evangelism. And they saw no conversions afterwards. None. And so they went back and they started asking themselves, okay, like what happened? Why were there any conversions? What, did we do something wrong? And what they learned was that one of the words they had used in their translation made the gospel sound like a myth. And because it had made the gospel sound like a myth, it had lost its power. So they had to go back and change that word into a word that communicated truth. The gospel was not a myth. It was truth. And when they changed it from myth to the truth, 
then they started seeing conversions. Christian boldness comes from believing in the truth of the resurrection that no matter what happens in our lives and in this culture, Jesus has won. That gives us the boldness that we need to live a godly life and communicate godly truth. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see is that um, boldness comes by faith in God's sovereignty. So in, in Peter's prayer here, he's saying God is in control of all things. He is God over heaven. He is God over earth. And he is sovereign over Jesus' death. He says it was predestined. They carried out what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's one of, the, one of the major things you see in the book of Acts is that the early church is always going back to the sovereignty of God. But they're also actively engaged in the work of God. So you've got this mystery here, right? That God has a hand and God has a plan, but also we are responsible for participating in that plan. And the Bible holds those two things in tension that they are both true and right and good. And so we've got to hold those things in tension as well. So we believe that God has a hand and God has a plan. We believe that God is at work. So we engage in the process of evangelism. Um, this week I was talking to uh, our campus minister at Oklahoma State, and he was telling me that uh, see, there was a student who came to RUF as a freshman my last semester. Um, he was not a Christian, but he came because there were some girls that he thought that were cute, and they came to freshman Bible study, so he came to freshman Bible study. How many, I mean, how many guys have been converted that way? Right? That's a, a great evangelism tool. There may or may not be guys in this room that have been converted that way. I don't know. I'm just saying that. But he came because there were cute girls. And we began to talk. We began to develop a relationship. And he told me that he wasn't a Christian, but he was curious about Christianity. And I said, why don't we get together and start reading the Bible? So we got together and we started reading the Bible together. And we read the Bible together my last semester. And we left. I told Wilson, the new campus minister, I said, Wilson, I've started meeting with this guy. Uh, He says he's not a Christian, but he wants to read the Bible. I'd just love for you to continue reading the Bible with him. So he said, okay. So Wilson continued to read the Bible with him. Read the Bible with him all last year, his sophomore year. This week, Wilson texts me and says, hey, guess what? This year, he's going to read the Bible with our intern, Jacob. This will be the third year in a row that this student has met with somebody from our ministry to read the Bible. (laughs) Is God at work? Yes. Do we participate in that work? Yes. We participate in the work because we know that God is at work. We trust that he's sovereign, that he has a plan. That's how he works. And that's how he comforts Christians when they face opposition. As we we said before, one of the things that made the early church grow and spread like wildfire was that they died better than anyone else. When they were thrown to the lions, they were literally singing. How could they sing in the face of death? Because they knew that Jesus is one and that God was sovereign. And that gave them the resources they needed to, to live bold Christian lives in the face of suffering. So we believe in the truth of the resurrection and we believe in God's sovereignty. And lastly, boldness is a gift that comes through prayer. Prayer is the cheap act of faith. And what do these believers do? They pray. 
Now, uh, why did they pray? They prayed because they didn't have boldness. If you're afraid, if you're cowardly, if you, were, if you shrink back from difficult conversations about the gospel, if you, if you find yourself uh, being in a situation where you compromise your godly character, what do you do? You pray. You pray that God would give you the boldness to have godly character and communicate your godly convictions in the time that you need. We pray for godly character. We pray for godly conviction. We pray for our religious and irreligious and Christian neighbors. We pray, I believe, help my unbelief. And we pray for God to give us opportunities so that opposition to the gospel can become an opportunity for the gospel. We pray for evangelism. We pray for divine appointments. I heard a a great story this week about a, a divine appointment that uh, a lady named Edith Schaefer had. Okay, so Edith Schaefer, you probably don't know her, but her husband was a man named Francis Schaefer. Uh, Francis Schaefer was a Presbyterian minister. He was also a philosopher, a theologian. He was into apologetics, all those things. And he and his wife were very evangelistic. Well, uh, in 1947, Edith Schaefer was asked to lead a Bible study on the Day of Atonement. Okay, this is, this is the day of, uh, in the Old Testament where they did the ritual sacrifices that foreshadowed the death of Jesus on the cross. So Edith thought, you know what would be really great is if I asked a Jewish person about the Day of Atonement. So she started asking around, and, and she, she, she knew she had a Jewish neighbor, so she went to ask her Jewish neighbor, said, hey, you know, can you tell me how a Jew views the Day of Atonement? And her Jewish neighbor kind of sheepishly said, well, you know, I'm not really active practicing Jew. Like, I just say I'm Jewish. But there's a dentist down the street. You should go talk to him. He's a very devout Jew. So she goes down the street. She finds the dentist. She finds his house. She knocks on the door. A young lady, his daughter, comes to the door. And, and, and Edith introduces herself, says, how my name is Edith. I'd love to come in and, and talk to your father and have a conversation with him. Um, she's very respectful. She says, I, you know, I want to ask him about the Day of Atonement because I know he's Jewish. I realize that this may be uh, uh, insensitive. I don't want it to be insensitive. I just want to come in and learn. So she says, okay. Uh, you know, she asks her dad. He says, that's fine. So Schaefer walks in and she begins to uh, have a conversation with a man. And, and she introduces herself and she's very kind and respectful. And, and she just says, I would like to hear the Jewish perspective on the Day of Atonement. And so he says that, you know, uh, when he was growing up, he just remembers that his father and grandfather, on the Day of Atonement, they would all confess their sins. That's what they did. It was a day of confession. So she heard the story. She thanks him. She begins to leave, right? And as she's leaving, the daughter stops her at the door, right? And the daughter says, ma'am, you've been so kind, You've been, you've been so caring and kind and respectful to us and thoughtful. She said, I don't have any Gentile friends that treat us this way. None. Where does your love come from? And she said, well, you know, I would, I would love to tell you about that, but I'm at your house, and so I don't want to disrespect you, and I don't want to offend you in any way. And the girl looked at her dad and said, Dad, we, we want to know, don't we? And he said, yes, I want to know. So (laughs) that day she walked back into the house and she started with the Old Testament and she began to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. And then 
After she got done explaining the gospel from the Old Testament, she said, now, I don't want to offend you anymore. Please let me know if I've offended you. I'd be happy to leave and stop here. And he says, no, I want to, I want to hear how the story ends. So then she explains the gospel in the New Testament to him. She explains it all the way to, to Revelation where she talks about this marriage supper of the Lamb and, and Christ coming back. Uh, and um, she, she lays out the gospel for him, right? And as she gets to the end, the daughter looks at the father and says, have you ever heard anything like this? And he says, no. I've been a dentist in this town for 30 years and nobody has ever shared this story with me. Friends, the, the Holy Spirit gives us a boldness that turns opposition to the gospel into opportunities for the gospel. But it starts with us. It starts with us developing godly character and praying for godly conviction that only comes through the Holy Spirit. So let's go to the Lord and pray that he would sanctify our character and he would give us the boldness we need to share the gospel with others. Let's pray together.